Hello, welcome to a bonus mini episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. I'm joined today by Tony Barrell, a journalist and musician, to discuss his 2019 book, The Beatles on the Roof. One of the most fabled and famous days in the Beatles history, the January 1969 concert on the roof of the Apple Building was a triumph of spontaneity. Tony's book studies the concert in penetrating detail, debunks some myths and serves to remind us of what a special day that was. Tony Barrell, hello and welcome to the Beatles Books podcast. How are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a semi-obvious question, I suppose. I think there are lots and lots of different you know, days, weekends, months in the Beatles history that could uh, warrant their own book. Um, yeah. And the rooftop concert is, is obviously one. Um, mm. What was it about that particular event in the Beatles history that attracted you to, to write this book? Um, it, it's a personal thing. Uh, it goes back um, many years when I was a tiny boy. I was very precocious in that uh, as a tiny boy, I was uh, a big fan of the Beatles. And I'd, you know, it didn't, it didn't take um, much persuasion for me to jump on a chair with a tennis racket and, and sing along to She Loves You, you know. Uh, and so I was a huge fan. And I, I remained a fan right through their career. Uh, and um, there was one day in 1969, it was the end of January, it was the last day of January, it must have been a Friday, uh, when I was walking to school, to primary school in short trousers, um, very young, and it was freezing cold, and um, uh, I got to the playground, and um, I met somebody I vaguely knew, a boy I vaguely knew, who knew I was a fan of the Beatles, and said, hey, did you hear what the Beatles did yesterday? And of course I hadn't heard. Uh, and um, I said, no. He said, but they, they played a special concert at their place in London. I, did, I said, did they? And I didn't really believe it for a while. And, and, and he said, yeah, they, they, they played lots of songs. They were on the roof of their, their, their offices. And, uh, and I, was, I, I, I became very angry. I became livid. And there was some, I don't know what it was. I, I was illogical, like most children are. I thought that as the Beatles, you know, were my world, I thought they knew that I was a fan. I mean, uh, um, and, and, I, and I was just angry that I hadn't been invited to this rooftop concert. So it was, this, writing this book was a personal thing, but I didn't really think about writing it as a book. Um, I'd sort of touched on it in articles for the, for the press in the past. Um, and I'd interviewed Alan Parsons at one point, and he told me about his part in the in the rooftop concert, you know, how he'd gone shopping for stockings to go over the microphones. Uh, and uh, that was quite amusing. But I was actually looking around at one point for a, a book or some more information on the rooftop concert because I needed more information. There, there wasn't, there were about two paragraphs in, in Shout by Philip Norman. There, you know, there a page in some other books. Mm. And I was looking for a book on the rooftop. That's what really fancied reading a book about the rooftop concert. And there wasn't one. So I, I thought, well, I, I'm going to write one. So I decided to do that. That's, that's the long answer to your question. I'm glad that you did. Um, <laughs> I wanted to start with uh, a little bit of history on uh, number three, Savile Row, which is, as we know, yeah. is, is where the Beatles offices were and where this particular concert took place. Um, it was yeah. something that I knew nothing about until I, I read your book. Um, okay. So two kind of questions around that. First of all, what, what notable events did you find in research in that particular building? And secondly, yeah. what do you think attracted Apple and the Beatles to buy yeah. in this building? Well, the, the story goes that Neil Aspinall was given the quest 
uh, he, he was given this quest to, to find um, a, a nice building where they could set up their headquarters in London and, and start the whole Apple thing. Well, Apple was actually already um, founded, but they, they wanted to, to expand it and they wanted to uh, um, uh, find a nice building to do that in. And um, so he found number three Savile Row and it was a nice, handsome Georgian building, you know, it's a, uh, in, a, in a really smart part of town. They knew Mayfair quite well. They'd, they'd been clubbing there and, and uh, you know, done quite a few things there. So that was a, and they had half a million to spare. So they, they, could, they could just, just buy it outright. But one thing that seemed to, seems to have piqued their interest, particularly Paul McCartney's, I think, was, uh, was that it was supposedly, this house was supposedly bought by Lord Nelson for his mistress, Lady Hamilton. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, he was immediately seized by the romance of that. And uh, I, I think he might also have been, enjoyed that because uh, a lot of people don't know, but that La- Lady Hamilton was actually born in the Wirral in Merseyside. So, uh, you know, that could have made it even more interesting. So um, anyway, I, I, I read that quite a long time ago and, and sort of swallowed it as fact. And I thought, well, is this actually true? And I was just, when, when exactly did he buy it for her? And um, I looked through all the history that I could find and there was no mention of Lady Hamilton connected to that house at all. And I started thinking, is this one of those eight sort of estate agent stories that go around, you know? Uh, oh, yes, this house. Yeah, so, so-and-so slept here and blah, blah. Uh, so I thought, well, I, I'll go to some authorities. So I wrote to a couple of um, uh, Lady Hamilton biographers, um, Flora Fraser, who's daughter of Antonio Fraser, and a historian herself, who'd written a big book about Lady Hamilton, and also the Professor Kate Williams, who's quite, quite a well-known media figure now. Um, and both of them said, no, we don't believe that Nelson ever bought this house for, for Lady Hamilton. Uh, she might possibly, I mean, the, at the time... Um, according to Flora, the house was owned by William Wellesley Pole, some aristocrat. Uh, he, was, he was sometime master of the mint during the time Nelson and Emma were romantically involved. But uh, Wellesley Pole did not live in the house but rented it out. So there's a slim possibility that he rented it to Nelson for Lady Hamilton. But that's, that's um, uh, Kate Williams is, um, is, is more sceptical. She says, um, I'm afraid it's not true. Many, many buildings are said to have been bought by Nelson for Emma, but they are, in most cases, it's not so. So, um, you know, that was, that was really interesting that, that you know, they, they almost um, were sold this, this house on false pretenses. But um, I did find that various people had, had lived in the house, but, the, you know, sort of minor aristocrats, and, 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 um, uh, but, but, but not Lady Hamilton, which is a bit of a shame. Um, yeah, but a very nice, lovely building. If you've ever been inside it, it's, it's really worth, worth uh, strolling around. It's, um, it's a beautifully designed Georgian building, you know. So obviously the rooftop concert was born out of the Twickenham sessions of January 1969. Um, yeah. I, I've spoken to a few authors about this and it, it, it's, it's fascinating to hear their reply. So I'm, I'm intrigued yeah. to hear yours. Um, kind of the tone, the view of these sessions has changed quite dramatically over the last maybe five, six years. Almost, yeah. like, almost like it's building up to the Peter Jackson film, which is coming out yeah. uh, in next mm. year, apparently, allegedly. It was always, t- we were always told that these were the most miserable sessions on earth and they were hell on earth and uh, it was cold and bleak and, yeah. uh, and mm. you know, that they couldn't bear each other. But recently, 
we're seeing a bit of a change, a little bit of a, a change of tact uh, that these actually, these were in the main, they were pretty upbeat, positive, you know, happy, smiley, go lucky type uh, affairs. Um, what do you think? Do, do you buy this slight, maybe a rewriting of history or maybe the, the, the initial view was misguided? I, I, don't, I don't know what to think now. I mean, no. it's always been um, received wisdom that um, the those rehearsals at Twickenham were... were um, just incredibly um, unfriendly and, and um, had a really nasty atmosphere about them. John Lennon didn't spare his, his feelings about them. He said it was like going through hell. Mm. He hated how, having some old geezer poke a camera up his nose while they were trying to make music. And he, he called the whole let it be thing sort of, uh, he said it was a, like, a, like a bad home movie or something. Mm. Yeah, he said, um, so I'm just trying to find the quote. He said, it was like a goddamn bootleg version of an eight millimeter home movie. Um, uh, so I didn't want to know about it. None of us did. And he's, he's, uh, the exception there is Paul McCartney, who was the, you know, who was the one who really G'd them all up and wanted them to rehearse and, and, and ultimately play live again. Mm. Um, I was talking to a, a fellow Beatles fan last year and, and, and this, I noticed that this is the first time I sort of came across this revisionism. Mm. Uh, and he said, um, you know, in your book, you talk about the, the rehearsals being a bit turgid and a bit, and he said, I've been listening to all of the tapes, you know, <laughs> listening to all of the, those, those tapes. And he said, it's really good music. It's fun. They're, they're having a whale of a time. They're really enjoying themselves. Mm. Well, you know, there are highlights on it. There ultimately, there are highlights and there's no doubt about that. And I think some of the rooftop songs are highlights and some of the songs that eventually go on to Abbey Road, you know, things like um, Golden Slumbers, things like that. And I love the way they play Torchy the Battery Boy, <laughs> which is an old Jerry Anderson theme tune. You know, apparently they used to play that in the cavern. Uh, there are highlights on it, but some of it, did, um, I mean, they... Some of it just sounds less than enthusiastic. Uh, um, I've, according to the press, um, uh, Hanif Qureshi, who's writing the um, preface or introduction to the, the book that goes with the film next year, has talked about this being some of the best music they ever made. And I, I, I still don't get it. I, uh, unless there's something that, that has been completely missed off the tapes for all these years. Then, then, then I, I think it sounds like hype to me. I mean, I, I, I'm desperate to see the movie, the new movie, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm sure it would be really good. And, and there would be stuff in there that I, I've never seen or heard before. Mm. Um, you know, I was talking when I made when I wrote this book. I, I was talking to Paul Bond, who was uh, the junior cameraman on um, on Let It Be, and he um, he said to me. Tony, do you know where all those hours and hours and hours of tapes went? The, the, all the, those reels of film that, that we, we made, we made hundreds, you know. And he said, I, I, I wish I knew where they were. So we didn't know at the time that Peter Jackson was uh, about to do this. So, so it would be great to see some of that stuff. It's but highly it entertaining. There was no doubt a bleak time for them all. And, and you know, George, George walked out, George Harrison walked out of the sessions and sort of left the band for just less than a week. So I, I don't think he enjoyed it that much. No. And, um, and of course, John said these things about it was like going through hell. Mm. Mm. So yeah. you know, I, I don't think it was great. We'll see. We'll see what, what comes out next year. But yeah, I think, yeah. I think for me, George walking out is the one thing that doesn't quite sit right in this, you yeah. know, in this change yeah. of tack. Because he, he told him that he'd see him around the clubs and, and there he was gone. Um, yeah. And before that, apparently there was a raging row between John and uh, George. Mm. People think it was the George and Paul. 
uh, which is on the letter B. That was a different time, different day, I think. Yeah. Um, but they had a huge row with John, which isn't on tape anywhere, apparently. It was conveniently wiped or disappeared or fell out the window somewhere. So, uh, you know, there, there was some rancour and, and some disagreement definitely going on then. Absolutely. Um, so we'll, we'll move on to the genesis of the rooftop itself yeah. now. Obviously, throughout the sessions, they're, they're discussing where they're going to play this concert. You know, the idea is that they would rehearse, they would get it together, and then there would be a show at, at the end of the, the month or whatever it was that they, they kind of set aside. Yeah, yeah. What did you find out about where else they were looking to, to play? I mean, were there a lot of options that they were looking at? Um, yeah, they, they were a tremendous um, number of options and it became almost like comedy really where they, they just kept introducing wild ideas about where they were going to play. Uh, I mean, at one point they were discussing playing the Houses of Parliament. You know, they probably couldn't have got permission to do that. But that would have been quite outrageous and quite arrogant to do that. Then they had some quite nice low-key ideas, like they were going to play on a boat on the Mersey, you know, go back to their roots, really, and, and play on a, on a little boat, which probably wouldn't be that practical. Um, they were going to play the Grand Canyon. Uh, <laughs> that would have been fantastic. The one, that, the one idea that they seized on that, that, that was stuck around for quite a long time was Michael Lindsay Hogg's idea that they play in this amphitheatre he knew about in um, Tunisia. El German Amphitheatre, and he was quite keen on the idea of them playing in this wonderful setting, historic setting, with lots of big audience there. Um, and they even talked about getting a boat from Liverpool to Tunisia to to bring fans from from Britain to um, to be part of the crowd. But they wanted the crowd to be sort of interracial as well. They wanted to have Tunisians in there as well, and, and that was quite a nice idea for quite a long time. Um, and then uh, Dennis O'Dell, who was head of Apple Films, he said, um, he suggested another amphitheatre, almost as if he was competing. Um, in, this was in Tripoli in Libya, where he did, he'd seen a, an opera some years before. Uh, and so there were these two amphitheatres sort of like vying for attention. And, and then they, they sort of came down to earth again. They started talking about maybe playing the Royal Albert Hall and playing or maybe playing the Roundhouse in Camden. Um, and that was just quite a nice idea. Um, and, and then Ringo suggested they play Gibraltar, um, and they, they started talking about Tahiti. So they're talking about Tahiti. They'd, they'd had a holiday in 64 in Tahiti and really enjoyed it. Uh, Tahiti, Tunisia, and Tripoli. So it was like all the T's for a while. Uh, and they couldn't, and then of course, what happened was that um, George left and so he didn't want the gig at all. And they, that, you know, all those, those things came crashing to the ground. Uh, I, I, there's a conversation that, that, uh, that in, a, in a book um, by Barry Miles mm. um, uh, with conversation with, one, with Paul McCartney where Paul says, um, you know, I think we even talked about playing on the moon. Okay. You know, the moon was very much in the news because, you know, uh, the Apollo 11 mission was, was uh, being prepared for, for that summer. Um, anyway, um, Michael Lindsay Hogg had, had this idea uh, so he tells me, you know, and I, I, I've no no cause not to believe him. Um, that uh, why don't we do why don't we do the show here? You know, he felt like Mickey Rooney in a in an old film saying that why don't why don't you play it up on the roof? And and you know they they thought that was a really quite interesting idea, and they they didn't have any objections to doing that. It, it's a bit like you know when they played out when they uh, made Abbey Road, and they were they went out in the street to, to do the cover, you know, we're not going that far, you know, they, 
they were going to talking about going up Everest to do the cover for Abbey Road, but they didn't in the end. They went, uh, they just went outside the studio, and it's a bit like that, isn't it? They they've got this big concert, which is supposed to be the end of the, this TV documentary initially that they were doing, uh, and that they're, they're just going to go up the stairs and go up on the roof and plug in and, and play. You know, not much, not not much effort in getting there. They, that's what they ultimately did. Michael, though, tells me that, um, you know, lots and lots of people have claimed to, to have come up with the idea. You know, it's, a, it's such that, it, you know, he thinks even the, the cook who made the apple crumble may have suggested that they, they play the rooftop concert. Uh, and Billy Preston claimed at one point that it was John Lennon's idea. Uh, some other accounts say it was Ringo's idea. And other accounts say it was Glyn John's idea. Uh, and it just goes on and on. But Michael is the most convincing claimant, I, th I, I think. Um, and, and he tells, you know, the story very, very clearly in his book. And he's adamant that, that it was his idea. And that then, uh, you know, then they, they took some trips up to the roof to have a look round and take some photos and, and, uh, and check it out and realised they had to... The roof itself was, wasn't in great shape, I don't think. And it, it wouldn't have supported all those instruments and all the all the people um so they they uh they put some scaffolding up there and, and and just just secured it all and and made it you know made it nice and and uh yeah so that's how it all that that's how it all kicked off so were they all kind of keen on the idea from lindsay hogg's point of view it's that thing of we've got to get this finished we've got to tidy this up yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the easiest way that everyone can agree on is just to go upstairs, you know. But do you think they're all they're all key on that initial? Did it well, the story goes that they they were uh, they they had cold feet when they not you know literally and and figuratively yeah. they had cold feet when they got up to the roof and 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 they weren't going to do it. And suddenly John said, "Oh yeah," and he swore a bit and said, um, "You know, um, let's do it." And and kind of reassumed the leadership of the band in a way and said let's get out on the roof and 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 they did it and and you know you can see from the smiles on their faces during that film that they're really really enjoying themselves aren't they mm. and i think i think they've surprised themselves at how how much they're enjoying themselves and it's um i think they it, it, it's the joy of playing live to an audience for the first time in a very long while it's something like 885 days, I think, right. uh, since they played Candlestick Park. Mm. So 885 days for any band, that's a long time to go uh, between gigs. <laughs> and, you know, you've got to get a bit, you know, even if you're still rehearsing between yourselves, it's, you're going to get a bit rusty if you're not, you haven't played in public for a long time. Mm. And I think McCartney knew this and, and uh, you know, which is why he was really keen for them to to play again, mm. you know, because that, that was where the magic was, and and people want so many people wanted to see them again. Mm. And um, when it actually happened that they started playing and started looking at each other and 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 hearing some reaction from the people down below and in offices and things um, and on other roofs, mm. um, they they were thrilled and they thought this is what it's all about, really. You know, this is like old times, and uh, and and I, they really enjoyed it. If we can move on to the actual the gig itself, you know, I'm going to assume that the majority of people that are listening to this podcast have watched it and heard mm. it, I'm sure, many times over, like myself. You were able to, uh, as I gather from the book, speak to a, a good number of people that were there yeah. um, in, in different capacities, obviously. Um, if mm. you could just go through, you know, maybe some of the people that you did speak to and but 
the key thing I, w- I was curious to see if you found out anything that surprised you you know that yeah. you didn't know before you started writing the book quite a lot of things really i mean um that the original idea was to play on the wednesday which right. i didn't know about beforehand uh, uh that was all set in place and then and then michael lindsay hogg and tony richmond who was one of the the, uh, the cameramen uh, looked at the weather forecast on Tuesday and decided Wednesday was going to be too gloomy and uh, and they put it back to the next day and uh, but they all were also planning to get some get a helicopter to take some footage from from high up in the sky it's a bit like I mean you'd get drones to do that now wouldn't you yeah, yeah, yeah. they were try they were you know negotiating I think at one one point somebody was negotiating with Westminster Council to uh, to, to get helicopters up, but, but they weren't allowed to do that. It was, there was some legal problem with doing that, so they couldn't. That was, that was quite a big surprise for me. Um, I liked hearing Dave Harris's story. Dave was one of the people who uh, uh, were sent to, to get equipment from Abbey Road Studios to set up to, um, to actually amplify the, the music. He and and uh, the chap he went with was were stopped by police on on the way with you know looking a bit suspicious with sort of wearing scarves and 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 with all this equipment in the back of this um, vehicle. The, the the rooftop concert almost didn't happen because the police almost stopped it you know very early in the morning and, and stopped them getting bringing the equipment to to Savile Row. So that's that was quite a fun thing. Mm. Um, it was really interesting to talk to. Uh, Alan Parsons uh, about uh, you know having to get the the stockings from uh, from Marks and Spencers um, uh, and and you know he was a terribly nervous young man and, and um, was concerned that people thought he was either going to um, carry out a burglary or something or or or, or he was a cross dresser. <laughs> uh, he, he had to put these stockings over the. Um, Glyn Johns has asked him to get to put these stockings over the mics because it was quite windy that day. It was indeed very windy. I mean, I've looked at the temperature and I've, I've sort of consulted the meteorological office and uh, expecting it was like zero degrees or something. But it was actually seven or eight degrees, which isn't bad. But up high, mm. um, uh, it, it would have been, you know, a bit chillier. And also there was a significant wind blowing sort of towards their faces, which you can see in the film, actually. Mm. So the wind chill factor was pretty huge. So it would have made, made it feel like about two degrees up there, maybe. Um, yeah, I, I, I spoke to um, Chris O'Dell, who was sitting by the chimney there. Uh, uh, she was had quite a few stories here and there. The one, the one that made me laugh was when she, the, the, the police eventually arrived and came onto the roof, and one of them said, "Don't you know that this is louder than a transistor radio?" Um, <laughs> Which was an odd thing to say. <laughs> I'm sure it was loud, louder than about you know 50 transistor radios. And uh, I spoke to Peter Brown, who uh, uh, I actually skyped Peter Brown, which was a, which was a bit of a privilege, you know, just yeah. chatting to him, you know, as he's sitting in his New York apartment. He talked about the police arriving, and 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 the, the, you know they they were saying you can't do this, you can't do this, and and it, it, you know he said why not? Why can't we do this? And they said well haven't you told your landlord? And uh, he broke the news to them that this was the Beatles' property and they owned it outright, and there was no landlord, and and couldn't they do what they like on their own property? You know, so so that was a bit of a problem with the police, who but they they ended up negotiating a an end to the concert because there had been a lot of complaints from businesses nearby mm. uh including the bank over the road and things so uh yeah the, i 
a, a lot of people have, have different stories from from the yeah. rooftop um, yeah. did you get a vibe of what the impression was on the street you know because i mean i think there was yes. you, it was in the film they kind of do these little vox pops don't they where they speak to people um i mean yeah. I, I, were people even aware that it was the beatles up there a lot of people weren't because it was like the opposite of Beatlemania. You know, when, when they were playing their early gigs, you know, and girls were screaming out and drowning out the music, you know, you could see the Beatles, but you couldn't hear them. This time, the people on the ground or in the street um, could hear them, but they couldn't see them. And also they were playing music that nobody had heard before. Nobody had heard Get Back or Dig a Pony or Don't Let Me Down or, or even the old song they played, the one after 909, because they... they they hadn't, they had recorded that years ago, but they hadn't uh, released it. So this was all new music as far as the public were concerned. And there definitely was a lot of confusion. Even the witnesses I spoke to who stayed there and listened to the whole music, uh, the whole concert, um, they said that, that, you know, initially they didn't know who it was and they were just asking around, who is it, who is it, who is it? And some people recognised the, the sound of the band because they had a very special sound. You know, they were mostly fans who recognised the band. Um, there was a chap I spoke to called Andy Taylor who was working as, in the post room in, in East London and had to deliver uh, something to uh, somewhere in the West End. And, and he heard the concert. He was a music lover, but he, he heard the concert and didn't, think much of it and then and then went back home to London later found out on the news that it was the Beatles and he was he was absolutely uh, <laughs> uh, um, um, annoyed with himself for not having stayed to listen to it so it, it wasn't immediately familiar music if they'd been been playing something like She Loves You or Sgt Pepper then then people would have cottoned on very quickly but a lot of people didn't know you know there must have been a lot of muttering you know, who is it is it the Kinks you know what's happening is it Led Zeppelin you know there must have been quite a bit of muttering going on. That's a fascinating point that I, I've never thought of, that, yeah, they, they didn't... No one knew these songs. No one had any idea yeah. what, what any of these songs were. Um, it's, 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 you know, it's quite a slightly arrogant thing to do, isn't it? To, 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 um, to suddenly appear for the first time in, in ages and, and just start playing completely new material. Yeah. I mean, bands have done it, but it's never gone down very well. No. You know, people want to hear the hits, don't they? Absolutely. And uh, if anything, they want to hear the hits the most from the Beatles. Um, yeah. Uh, what obviously we can talk a bit about the concert itself. Uh, it is unquestionably uh, an uplifting experience to watch um, in these, you know, current circs. Sometimes watching something like that, you know, really familiar, yeah. happy, happy thing is is really uplifting. I, I, you know, I've certainly found that. Um, you can tell, and you did allude to this uh, previously. Um, in particular, you know, John and Paul. They're having a great time up there. You know, you, can, yeah. you can't hide that. Whatever, you, you know, people have spoken for, you know, years about their personalities and what they were going through at that point, etc. But just in that moment, captured for everyone to see, they were having a, a whale of a time. Um, mm. uh, I'm curious just to just take your opinion on whether or not you think that was part of that might have been because they knew this was the end. You know, this was the end of this project. Yeah, which, yeah. That, which they that... had laboured over. I think it's possible that they were they were thinking, okay, you know, just one more for the road, mm. you know. Uh, but you know, Paul didn't really want the, to, the band to split up. Um, uh, John had his own sort of avant-garde sideline with Yoko, and he was doing all kinds of events, like appearing uh, in a bag on the stage of um, the Albert Hall and things like that. So um, he had plenty of other things to do. 
and George just was slightly frustrated that, that, that you know, he had a huge backlog of songs he'd written that, that weren't being heard. So, you know, he, he was quite keen to put out a solo album at some point um, or another solo album, you know, he'd done electronic music and stuff yeah. like that. So, you know, I think, but I think they might've had the sense that maybe this is the last time, mm. you know, because things had gone, um, there had been so many rows and things recently and the white album hadn't been a happy record to make really i mean they they made it um a, a lot of that music you know largely in separate studios i as i say in the book i think it was a a self audition you know they wanted to see if they could still cut it as a live band you know Do, uh, uh, I, 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 george is the one that's a little bit you know, he's, you can see in the film, he's not quite engaging, is he, in the same way that the... There's a nice bit where he Paul drops off. down on one knee to sort of in, a, in, a, in a classic sort of rock star pose, isn't there? And, uh, and um, he, he, he did, you know, he's smiling quite a lot. He, yeah. he seems to be having a fun time. And, and despite how, the freezing weather, he's, he's playing quite beautifully. Mm. Uh, you know, he's played some beautiful lines on, on things like, you know, um, Dig a Pony in particular, I like the solo on that. Um, uh, his fingers are being warmed up by um, Ken Mansfield, who's, who's on the roof as well, who's uh, head of Apple in America. Uh, and uh, he, uh, he was using cigarettes to warm George's hands, which is quite a sweet thing to do. I think um, I was curious to see that. Obviously, in, in the book, you, you then go on to talk about some other well-known rooftop kind of gigs that, that yeah, happen. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, was... Is there anything there that that you found out about that you didn't know happened, or, did, or did... yeah? Well, I was I was aware. I, I, I found out quite a you know some years before uh, about the Jefferson Airplane gig um, on on the roof in America. They played in December, you know, it's sort of pretty cold again, mm. uh, and so they're seen as the pioneers of sort of rooftop sort of surprise rooftop concerts. And I thought maybe Michael Lindsay Hogg had got the idea from them. Um, from Jefferson Airplane, because you know, uh, uh, but he uh, he says no, he actually had no idea they'd done that. So you know, this, the rooftop thing wasn't inspired by Jefferson Airplane as some people think it was. Do you think the Beatles had kind of fond memories of it? You know, do do you think that you know throughout? Obviously, Paul was one of those people that does do a rooftop concert, isn't he? Um, yeah, he's yeah. done it a few times since. Uh, do you think they they look back on that as as something with with warmth? I I think. Um, they didn't really talk about it much. Um, I mean, Lennon was just maintained that line that the whole, that whole period was hell for him. Uh, Ringo sort of didn't mention, he, Ringo has been talking about it much more now with the, the film coming up. He said, you know, um, it's amazing. We, you know, we, it's something like 10 minutes in the last film, but this is like 36 minutes in the next film. And it's incredible. He said, it's incredible. He loves it. He's, he can't quite believe that they did it. Um, which is great, you know. I, I don't, I don't, I haven't found, I, I haven't actually read anything about George say, mm. saying talking about the rooftop concert. Mm. He kind of um, didn't mention it very much uh, after that. And and um, John, of course, chose the roof, this very same roof, to go up and change his name later in 1969. He was wanted his name changed to John Ono Lennon. He found out later that he had to keep the Winston. So it it um, it didn't quite work the way he wanted it to, but but he chose the roof as a kind of um, uh, sort of sacred space to do that, and I think he, that he must have had happy memories of the the rooftop concert, if not the rehearsals, you know. Now it's uh, it's it's a fascinating story. There's there's so many elements of it that um, 
I didn't know about having having read the book. Um, just to kind of conclude, really, um, do, do you think there's uh, any kind of legacy of this? Do you think there was, could this have led on to, you know, a, a, something else for the Beatles other than, you know, because like I said, they all seem to enjoy that, you know, whatever it was, yeah. 30, 35 minutes so much. Well, maybe it just gave, it gave them a final spurt mm. so that they could do a really decent album. And, and finish the, their career on a really, really decent album, which is what Abbey Road is. You know, it's a fantastic album. I love it. Uh, when you listen to the rehearsals uh, in Twickenham and, and, and in the Apple building, um, you know, you can't quite believe that, that, that later that year they will make a fantastic album. Um, when you listen to the White album, you think it might all be over, actually. You know, so it, it's... I, I think the rooftop may have emboldened them a bit, may have... Made, made them think well maybe they're you know the Beatles have got legs after all you know mm. it's this project has got legs maybe we can um and and you know when when they asked George Martin to make another album he was very pleasantly surprised and said what like in the old days and they mm. said yeah yeah and what well, he said even John wants to do that and they said yeah yeah so I, I think the rooftop concert played a part uh in in encouraging them to do one more album you know, it was like one more gig for the road and one more album for the road. It was, I think, perhaps without the rooftop concert, they might not have done that. Mm. Just yeah. a thought. No, I think it's, <laughs> I, I think it's a, a, a very accurate analysis of it. Um, well, well, Tony, thank you so much for this. I've, I've learned um, even more than I could possibly think I could know about oh, ab- about the the roof uh, concert. Um, Tony Barrell, thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome. Thank you, Joe. Thank you.